years we have dwelt in the shadows, applying our skills and knowledge in secret, speaking our truth to all who would listen, applying our trade for those in need. Now it is time to emerge into the light, wipe our eyes of dust, and venture forth into the world. Make ourselves known, and invite all who seek our secret knowledge to work and learn with us. Welcome friends and fellow seekers to the Secret Society of the Instructional Designer. Travel with us auditorily as we explore the work and practice of our humble society. We begin with a discussion from some of our illustrious members, move into an interview from a practitioner of our art, and then finish with one of our most venerated traditions, a question from the question hat. So sharpen your pencils, open your notebooks, and align your learning objectives to the secret society of the instructional designer. Oh, hi. Today's episode, I think we're doing individual introductions first as as i've had people point at me and or more of the point i didn't stick my finger aside my nose to say not it in time uh so quick introductions for the people who are here today my name is steve widener and i am a manager of instructional design technology at rocky vista university i don't know how much more introduction we're looking for but otherwise i will pass it to nick Hi, and I am Nick Noel. I'm the Assistant Director of Educational Technology for MSU, that's Michigan State University, because there's a lot of MSUs out there, uh, Michigan State University's IT department. And I will hand it off to Rachel. Hi, um, the MSU I'm most familiar with is Make Stuff Up, which is um, the college that ChatGPT goes to, which I hope that we're going to get to talk to. Um, but hi, I'm Rachel Stern-Lockerman. I am an instructional technologist and designer with Queens College, um, CUNY, the City University of New York. I don't know if there are other CUNYs out there, but just in case. And last but not least, I'm Clea Mahoney. I am not a sound expert, and I'm also not employed at the moment. So maybe we'll talk about that in this episode. Um, but I just love instructional design. I love getting together with you all to chat about it and to chat about whatever is on our mind. Uh, original thoughts, not chat GPT thoughts. So <laughs> there's still room for originality out there, but chat GPT can be a great assistant, especially if there's stuff you don't want to do and it doesn't matter that it's creative or not. So I'll stop talking there, but I could keep going. <laughs> <laughs> if, if everybody's cool with it, Maybe we should just start with the chat GPT thing because it seems to be on everybody's mind uh, obsessively almost for the past month um, or so. And I just kind of am curious what your all's reaction to it has been. I'm going to confess that I have stayed the hell away from it. Uh, <laughs> I, I haven't touched it. I haven't played with it. I haven't actually seen the interface. I have just seen all the things everyone has been posting about it. Uh, one of those people I've seen extensively posting about it is Ian Linklater. For those of you who may not know him, he's an instructional designer and technologist in Canada who uh, was having some issues with Proctorio once upon a time. Mm -hmm. And so his big charge for the past week was noting that Turnitin is apparently claiming that they are turning on a chat GPT detector in assignments and they were not giving users the opportunity to either test the functionality or opt out of it as he pointed out just how many false positives one could get for unoriginality on this uh, so, yeah, that's one thing for folks to think about for any of you out there who might be using originality check software, uh, just because it looks like a robot doesn't mean it is. And the, the interesting thing that I'm noting about, because again, I think um, talking about the impact on higher education specifically has kind of been done to, to death a little bit. Um, but in terms of the broader sense of what it means to what are we teaching students to do? Um, ChatGPT actually overcame a catchfa because it uh, basically was talking to a task rabbit and says, hi, I'm blind. Uh, can you read this? Because I can't because I'm blind. Um, and then as part of this research project, um, they were asking them, explain your thought process at each point. And the thought process it gave was, um, well, I have to give an excuse about to explain why I need help, even though I'm a robot to convince them I'm not a robot. 
Um, <laughs> so it's giving an illusion of thinking, but also at the same time, it is giving a doing things that we originally thought were impossible for robots to do. So like, hmm, yeah. this is this is definitely going to require a good deal of rethinking for higher education, not just about um, checking and catching. Um, like the 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 example I always give my students in terms of like if you're going to guess. Um, why it doesn't make sense to cheat, because if you cheat and you get caught, there are severe consequences, starting with failing the exam and then getting worse from there. Um, however, if you just randomly guess at it, you're going to get it about right about 25% of the time, just because of um, multiple choice tests. Uh, however, the ChatGPT uh, only returns false positives 25% of the time. It returns, uh, it only catches AI generated content about half the time, which means it's worse. I mean, 25% of the time, which means it's worse than uh, flipping a coin. And, and it marks human generated text as AI generated 10% of the time. So it's literally worse than flipping a coin and then randomly choosing a multiple choice option. Um, and that makes me very nervous because uh, these are students' futures. So as we go in this podcast, I think I'll probably talk a fair amount about how I am maybe pathologically in disinterested in technology, <laughs> like, which is an odd career path to have chosen. There, there are certain applications that I enjoy and I, I definitely appreciate the connective aspects that technology has allowed for, you know, we wouldn't be doing this right now. None of us except for Clea and Steve have ever met in person. And that's only because Steve moved like <laughs> um uh so that's like we we are completely a friendship that exists on the internet to be so, fair you and i were geographically local at one point in time even if we didn't actually meet each other that's true yes we could have uh, bumped into each other somewhere that is true but but not on a permanent basis so there's things that i appreciate there's like the you know i think the idea behind podcasting and the ability for anyone to create something and get a mass audience if they put enough effort into it and it's something that people find interesting is amazing. Um, but the idea that technology is going to save us or that this sort of technology is going to is revolutionary and nobody's ever thought of something like it or, or whatever that happens to be, you know, the way that the in creators tend to think about it or talk about it in order to lie to investors about how useful it's going to be in 10 years. Um, I just, I just, I just don't care. Like, I'm just like, I'm just so disinterested. So that's where this, where similar to Steve, I just haven't really cared to look into it that much. I've looked into the consequences I've looked into the like the applications that people have used, but I just don't care to act on the interface. The thing that I am fascinated by is the questions it poses about what humans do when we're reasoning and thinking. And to some degree, there's some theories that, you know, there is no actual such thing as self uh, self-determination or a personality that we are all kind of mimicking it. Um, and you are, your, your actions are to some degree or to some large degree actually predetermined. You just think that you have free will. Um, and so I like that the chat GPT is giving us a thing we created that is mimicking those concerns that, and theories that other people have back at us and gives us an ability to explore them. Um, it can also be terrifying from an existential point of view. <laughs> so I don't know. Those are the things that I've been curious about it. So I'm a little bit the opposite. Um, I'm just selfish and I need something that helps me get past that dreaded writer's block uh, blank page state. And I'm thinking about something that a former colleague uh, recently shared with me that I fully agree with, which is you know, from easier to harder, it's editing someone else's writing, editing your own writing and writing mm -hmm. <laughs> on your own. So I've loved it just for 
well, lately applying for jobs um, based on this job description and my resume, which I, of course, I worked on myself, um, you know, help me write a one page cover letter because I'm tempted to write a novel or to take five hours and I don't have five hours. So anything that helps me cut that down, I've, I've just been loving it for that. Um, I've also enjoyed it for adjusting the tone or, you know, rewrite this explain physics to a five-year-old even like I am that five-year-old sometimes that needs that level of explanation and of course it can be wrong but that's why I have my physicist husband to be like hey is this right or is this total bs um so I don't rely on it for accuracy and I would definitely have concerns about plagiarism and academic integrity if I still worked in higher education uh which I do a little bit but but to me it's kind of like and I know this analogy has come up a bit and it is pretty different, but it's the only tangible one that I can think of, which is when we were all using graphic calculators to cheat and, you know, write <laughs> these codes for ourselves that we can pull up on tests. And at some point they just decided like, yeah, these tests can be open book and we got to teach students how to use these tools. So I would really appreciate any chance that we have to teach folks how to use the tools and teach them about limitations rather than don't ever do this and it's going to take away your gerb and it's going to be the end of humanity like somewhere in the middle is how I feel about it have your paradoxes ready for for when it does try to take over the world um so I mean something that I'm always really interested in exploring with faculty of is you know 20 30 years ago they were told you know we were told like perfect penmanship is is essential because you know when are you ever going to have that you can just write things down and text it like in your pocket that's never going to happen or you know the uh you know constant oh like you're never gonna have a calculator in your pocket all the time so you're gonna need to need know how to do all these things by hand and yes there is a value in learning the mechanics of how many of these things work um but like the reasoning of well this is never going to exist really needs to be just rethought. And I think it's important we do teach students how to leverage these tools. My One of my major concerns is that we're already seeing the monetization of these tools that like you can pay for the, um, what was what was it, the, you know, 20 years ago when they were going to make like a fast lane to the internet, but only if you paid that. And we, you know, like people, net neutrality, there we go. Um, so like you already have to pay to basically get ChatGPT to be reliable. Um, so who's going to actually have access to these tools and then building on that, um, if people are no longer like building these skills internally, there's not going to be new resources for chat for the new cheat chat GPTs to build on. Like a great example people brought up was stack exchange, which, it, which chat GPT learned a lot on, like, which is people post programming questions and then you like resource answers and then you try it. Oh, this didn't work. Let me try this. And they iterate that. And that's one of the reasons that ChatGPT can write code so so well. But what happens when everyone is just pulling code from ChatGPT and they're not, you know, writing new material for Stack Exchange or they're just putting ChatGPT things there? And ChatGPT still has a uh, still again is a graduate of MSU, makes stuff up, and it will just make random things up. So if you do not have the necessary skills to like differentiate, wait, this is just total BS. And this is, uh, uh, this is no, this is actually correct. Then that's my major problem. Not is, and that kind of brings us back to like, we've noticed a significant deterioration of critical thinking skills of teaching critical thinking skills. Um, and that's another kind of victim here. I mean, I, I will say that critical thinking skills have been in the toilet for at least 15 years, if not more, based on my own experiences in higher ed and how back in 2004, I had a faculty member at the hotel school at Cornell who built an assignment to have her students learn how to write a critical thinking paper where they had to read a paper and come up with an opinion on the paper, not just summarize it, but come up with an opinion and defend that opinion. So critical thinking has been an issue forever and we're still working on this. And you know, the, the idea that any amount of testing is done sure, solely on, do students recall this particular bit of information that you threw at them? So that's still gonna be a problem. Um, 
I am kind of wondering how much of this is just going to end up coming out in the wash in a couple of years. And everyone is going and panicking now because they're seeing, oh my God, these are all the problems now. <laughs> and if if you let it just work out a couple of years, yes, there's going to be a couple of years, but I, I don't know that this is a, we must stop this now. Because what we're doing is identifying the problems. Like you, you mentioned about ChatGPT just making stuff up. One of the things that will be worth doing is teaching students information literacy and how to look up references. Like when you see an article, maybe check out those references and see if they exist. Because that's a big thing that ChatGPT has been doing is just creating references out of whole cloth to articles that don't exist. And you know, that's one place I think that we could certainly work with students and build their skills. And that, that would be an excellent place for critical thinking skills of let's go outside the assignment. Let's look outside of the content I have been given for this assignment and acknowledge it, that there is the rest of the world to look at. Because like another thing is in medical education, all the program that you're teaching the students comes down to those board exams and those board exams are taken in person with none of these tools and students can cheat their way through med school all they want on the assignments and things like that but those board exams are another beast entirely and if you don't pass the boards you don't practice and if you don't practice you don't make the paycheck to cover all of that expensive medical education you've just spent all those years doing. So I would advocate a little patience. I guess to the extent that it asks us to reevaluate the types of assessments we're doing and if they are valuable given the new reality and maybe if they were ever really all that valuable, <laughs> um now i think it can be it can be useful you know i guess that's something i am i am kind of excited about the the issue that i think we're gonna probably face is similar to how we dealt with like other forms of plagiarism is we just came up with a thing that says whether you plagiarized it or not they're gonna come up with they're they're already doing it come up with a thing that says like well this was ai generated or we believe it to be ai generated and the difference between there's always a workaround like okay uh i i didn't want to i this is detecting that this was plagiarized um so i'm gonna pay somebody to write the essay for me now it isn't plagiarized because it's an original work it's just not mine you know or this is AI generated, we're having this tool to be able to detect the, detect the AI. Guess what? We're also building our own AI. So as you're paying for us to detect it, we're also making it better. So it becomes harder to detect. So you have to pay us more money in order to detect the thing that you've paid essentially for to make better, to make it harder to detect. And so like we see that you're going to see that continuing cycle. I, I don't think there's a way to avoid that except for just don't use the things as much that people use chat gpt or something similar to create like it's harder to do a project that requires multiple different pieces of media that you have to assemble together that uh you have to put your own personal thoughts into and experiences into that you have to draw connections from that are only specific to you. I'm sure you could pull together all of the different AI generative tools and fake something. But fuck, that seems like a lot of work rather than just making it. Right. And I guess the, the question for me there is why are you making it to begin with? Is it just because you have to do it and you're like zero percent or negatively intrinsically motivated, or is it something that you actually enjoy doing, but you just, you know, you don't have enough time for it? So dating myself horribly, late 80s was when MIT went to pass fail for the first year for first year students, just the entire curriculum 
was pass fail. And I remember a discussion at my school, which was, well, should we consider going to entirely pass fail? Why or why not? And then it led to discussions of, you know, part of the whole pass, part of the issue with an entire pass fail curriculum is then how do you compare yourself to other students when it comes to graduate school? And when you're competing for very limited spots in that. And so you had, you know, you had that argument and then you had the option of, you know, well, why don't you give students the opportunity to decide whether they want their grades to be pass fail or letter grade. Um, and, you know, you that way you give the students who are struggling, but who still want to stay in school, just the ability to go, yeah, well, okay, my first year was pass fail. And then we're counting from year two and three, four, going with the whole a in a grade, but now you also have the folks who are trying to sell everyone on micro credentials and say, oh, let's let's get a couple of badges together. And that's going to be just as good of a degree as this other person who did this. And, you know, we're getting away from the chat GPT discussion. <laughs> but um, it all goes back to what do students find valuable? And if they don't find it valuable, can you explain why it's valuable to them? Can you give them a reason to buy in. Um, I was reading something from someone who is an engineer who was complaining, I don't know why I had to take all of these lit courses when I was doing this. And my explanation was engineering courses teach you how to be an engineer. They teach you how to solve the problem. The lit courses and the critical thinking and all of that teach you how to identify the problem in the first place so someone doesn't have to show it to you so that you can be the first one to market with the idea. And sell it. And, and sell it, and right. Not only this... be able to say that this is what it is, but also tell people why it's valuable and, and what how it's going to improve their lives and be able to like think through like into the future around like what is possible in 10 years given the information I'm taking now and how can I anticipate that? Um, and even beyond just like a capitalist enterprise, just like for enjoyment, for enrichment, for just having a life that is beyond how much money you made and what you did for your job. Read something you wouldn't normally read. <laughs> you know, watch movies you wouldn't normally watch and learn how to ask questions about that. Hell, learn how to sculpt just because it's kind of cool. That sounds so nice. And I want to do a whole lot of that uh, again. Now that I don't have a job, I can do more of that. But I think the problem is, uh, you know, we're so conditioned, at, at least in the American society that I grew up in and still live in today, like, if you're not being productive and furthering your career, what are you even doing? And it is all about that hustle. And, and I really don't like it. And I really want it to stop. Uh, so I hope it does kind of soon. Like, I think we are starting to see a turning of the tide, you know, quiet quitting and using chat GPT instead of working 45 extra hours per week to just get some stuff done <laughs> that you don't care about. Um, it's kind of, kind of a symptom of like living in that society. So I, I wish we had more, you know, just incentive and acknowledgement and celebration when people do learn sculpting for fun, rather than getting another certificate to boost their chances of climbing the career ladder. Um, but that is rarer than, <laughs> than, I, Actually, than I think it should be. <laughs> so every semester I pull my students and we discuss the concept of need for achievement, which is a, a something discussed in personality psychology, which is what I teach. And, um, Recently, the usually the results, because I teach in New York City, um, recently the results um, have shifted from like, oh, yeah, hustle culture, we're in school, we're working full time, we're doing all of it. And now it's way in the other direction. So I am hopeful that we are moving more towards a um, work life balance, not hustle culture, not like kill yourself to maybe earn 10 cents extra, if you're lucky. So um if that is one thing that comes out of this chat GPT stuff, uh, a move towards higher quality of life, that would be great. Unfortunately, what I've noticed is every time we've heard that is that it's it's never actually happened. So like hopeful, but not not uh, 
very, very helpful. The problem is, is that it's a, it's not a zero sum game. You put in 45 hours. It doesn't mean you're getting 45 good hours. It means that the actual high level stuff you need to get done, maybe you have enough for 10 hours of that. And then maybe you can just check your emails for 35 hours. So in terms of looking efficient, it's great. In terms of actually accomplishing your aims, it's not. So I, the reason I hope we move towards it is both because, you know, it's better for humans, um, but also because I think it would actually mean that we're producing much more higher quality work. But what will site numbers look like at Slashdot and Reddit if we if we don't just keep these 40-hour work weeks? <laughs> we always have to keep Reddit in mind. I think that's well, yes. true. Um, all right. So if I think that was a, a fun conversation and I think we solved everything, so that's great. Totally. We can move on. We'll we'll solve the next big problem uh, next week. So that's that's awesome. But now we should probably go into our interview. And then we'll come back uh, with a question from the question hat. Thank you for joining me. Would you mind starting by introducing yourself? Sure, and I'm really glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. Um, my name is Natalie Vanderpool. I am an instructional designer at the Broad College of Business at MSU. Um, I don't know what, uh, how far back to go. <laughs> that's my, that's my, uh, well, let's, let's see how far back you feel like with this, with this first question. So, um, what brought you into instructional design? Um, microbiology, actually. Of course, uh, <laughs> that's where most people start. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up on 14 acres in California and I was homeschooled. So way back, we're starting way back in the mm -hmm. long version. Okay, well, um, we figured out, you know, <laughs> so you were born um, and then. <laughs> yeah, and and I, I got really interested in biology and I had this crazy idea that I was going to do research and I was going to discover some plant microbe interaction that was going to like, you know, cure world hunger as one does. Sure. Most children and... have such dreams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I went and got a bachelor's in biology, and then I was in Silicon Valley, and I don't really know what to do with a biology degree in Silicon Valley. It's for tech startups. So the best advice I got ever so far was, if you ever don't know what to do, do whatever is going to give you more options later. And for biology, that's a PhD. So I went and got a PhD because um, that was six years somewhat paid to figure out what I wanted to be with when I grew up. Um, and then two years in, I was like, you know, I don't like biology <laughs> anymore. <laughs> um, the, the pressure of growing things relying on me to like with multiple organisms you have to mm -hmm. sync up when the plants are growing and the bacteria and the fungi and it was just very stressful um and i looked at the lives and career paths of academics and faculty around me and i was like i don't think that's for me um and so i ta'd part of getting a phd is teaching being a teaching assistant for different courses and I loved it, but it was also deeply exhausting mm -hmm. for me. Um, I'm a very introverted person. And so being up there for like eight hours, once a week, twice a week was just wrecking my entire life. And, and as, if, if you're teaching for your career, that's every day. It's not just twice a week. <laughs> So um, you're, you're two years into a biology program that you're not excited about anymore. And the two yeah. things that you can do with it, research or teaching, you hate. Yeah. <laughs> or or um, find very stressful, I guess. Is what find I mean. very stressful. So interesting. And, yeah, how, how was it, the next four years for you with that realization? Um, Pretty bad. <laughs> it was pretty rough. And so it got to year five before I went to a professional development workshop that was like, um, so there's whole careers, like whole realms of things you can do. And having a PhD is great. Um, go for it, finish it out. But here's what those things are called. Mm 
mm-hmm. and instructional design was top of the list. And it was basically described as instead of working with the students, you work with the faculty. So it's one-on-one and your um, impact is magnified like tenfold. So you can still help people because that was what it was all about, right? Like world hunger, helping people, wanting to make an impact um, now, wanting to make an impact now instead of researching something that might be real or might not. You might put an entire career into something and find out, well, it's definitely not this. Um, (laughs) And even if you find something that's awesome, it's still going to be decades before that turns into something real. And I, that wasn't good enough for me. It wasn't tangible. I needed to help people in my lifetime on a daily basis. And so working with faculty became a way to do that. What was your first kind of job in instructional design like? Like when you made that transition, how did you do that? I leveraged a global pandemic that completely changed the way that uh, teaching happened pretty Mm -hmm. much across the world. Uh, I graduated with my PhD. I finished it and defended in uh, basically April or May, somewhere early 2020, right as COVID really hit the world. And that opened a lot of doors that otherwise would not have been possible for me. And so I found a position in IT, actually, at MSU. And they were looking specifically for PhDs to put together kind of a crack team for a couple years to help faculty redesign their courses for online instruction. And I think they really wanted PhDs for that like high level problem solving organizational skill, that analysis component that is common throughout PhDs, whatever your subject was. And so I was able to get a position because that was the big problem for me is that I had some training and I had the interest and I had the passion, but I had the wrong piece of paper. And so I was able to get a job that got me the on paper experience and then the real life job experience. I learned a ton um, in that position. How long have you been working in instructional design and what keeps you in the field? One of those fuzzy things where it depends how you count it, uh, (laughs) because I have been teaching and taking classes and designing lesson plans and rethinking experiences that I've taught and how I would redo them in, you know, in my ideas and for workshops and stuff since probably 2018. So that would be five years, but on paper, it's only been two or three. I think I've been practicing instructional design since probably 2019. I might not be counting right. I did a mentored teaching project as part of a degree pro or a certification program during my degree, um, where I actually got to put one of these ideas into play and do honest to God research on the results. Um, so I count that. <laughs> and I think our data was from 2018. That's how long I've been doing it. What keeps me in the field is folk thinking for right now about what I find most rewarding about my job right now is that I get to help faculty be creative and focus on the parts of teaching that get them excited and keep them in teaching. Because once you have a course and it's designed and you're running it and you've run it for seven times or something, it, it kind of becomes more administrative or it can, it can become more administrative. It can become more of a, you watch the videos. I say the things that I've said 70 times before and I grade the essays and there's a customer service element and it's easy to get caught up in the mechanics of administering a course. And so taking a step back to redesign it or design a new course, especially with someone who is 
outside of that experience. They don't have any stakes in the game. Let's faculty be nerds again. Because <laughs> they're all world-class <laughs> experts on their subject and they're teaching this for a reason and they got excited about it for a reason. And it's, it's easy to lose that yeah. in teaching. And so my job is to help them take an inventory of their course or map out a whole new course. And then we get very creative. Um, and something that I've been able to bring to Broad in my role is these animated videos. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of faculty, they have been relying on these pandemic era Zoom recordings <laughs> <laughs> or PowerPoint presentations or things that a third-party company created for them and they never quite were right but they mm -hmm. didn't really have a lot of agency in changing it and I get to create these little cartoon avatars of these faculty and they can see themselves in their work and it's nerdy and it's wonderful <laughs> um, and they get so excited and so happy about it and it's beautiful so that's what keeps me in it. <laughs> what is your favorite idea that you haven't gotten to do yet? So I have had a pet fantasy project since well before I finished my degree when I was trying to think what would I want to do um, and how do I aim the last of my microbiology degree in such a way that I get to do something really cool. Mm -hmm. And it was born out of being a TA in classes that were kind of gen ed, basically the, the quote unquote weeder courses where you've got someone who has no career interest in this biology course that they're required to take. And they have absolutely no idea why they should care other than that this is a hoop they need to jump through. It's an obstacle that they need to get past in order to move on with their careers. And they have to get this career so that they can get a job so that they can survive. And so it turns these courses into, which doesn't motivate you to learn what you've been asked to learn, to genuinely internalize it. And it also promotes a culture of, you know, I don't care. It's not important. It's an obstacle. I shouldn't have to. So why does it matter if I cheat? You know, like it's, it's the beginning of, of a massive number of problems with gen ed courses and their perception. Yeah. I mean, if it's, if it's just an obstacle, it's not something yeah. you care about. And you're being asked to pay for it too. It's yeah. not like you're just, you know, you have to jump through this hoop. Yeah. You have to pay to jump through the hoop and you have to pay a lot of money. <laughs> I think there, there is a perception that this is just so the university can make money off of me. So it doesn't matter if I actually learn anything. They're just making me do it to prop up this department or something. But if you think about it, a basic understanding of biology has massive implications on our society. Like think about the number of, of laws and policies that are being put into place by people who don't understand the human body. <laughs> like, the, the implications of this, of these gen ed courses are pretty widespread and it should be fun. It should be engaging. It should matter. And we don't have a way of telling students why they should care because the student body in these populations is so diverse. I have no idea what a packaging major does or cares about. I can't explain to a packaging major why they should care about biology if I don't understand what they do. And so, and this ties into knowledge transfer and helping them relate the topics to things that they already know and understand and care about. It's this massive thing. I want to build a network. Like if you imagine a neural network with balls for subjects and lines communicating connections between them of courses and concepts for students in a 3D space that they can filter, zoom in on, click on, and explore from their lens. If they're packaging, why should they care about biology? Because they might need to package something biological 
or they need to understand biodegradable packaging materials. You know, like mm -hmm. there are reasons that they should care. And there are reasons that any number of other people should care and reason how like ways to relate it. But it's so big that there's no one person that can build that. And so it needs to be crowdsourced and it needs a ton of data. And <laughs> I have no idea how to build a neural network. But if you gave me like $10 million to do a startup and like hire whoever I needed, that's what I would build. <laughs> I think that's, that is really interesting because like so often you don't know how useful something was until like five years after you, you did it. Like there's so many courses or things I learned about that are related to the job I have now that I, I didn't even know the job I have now existed when I was taking those courses. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's so much within like media production and learning about um, how graphics and video and audio interplay with each other, uh, learning just the basic production process, like all those things relate directly to my weird instructional design slash management IT job. And I mm -hmm. would have no, have no way of able to articulate that. Oh God, how long ago was it? <laughs> 20 years ago? Yes. Oh God. 20 years ago <laughs> when I was taking those courses. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's really interesting. And it also beyond the idea of taking a course to enhance your employment, it also, you know, shows like just to enhance yourself as a person. I, I think we lose that sometimes in education, like not everything you do and learn about has to have a contribute to your employment, you know, like <laughs> reason, yeah. you know, sometimes you may just want to hang out with your friends and have something to talk about. And knowing things is a good, is a good start to that. Like knowing about, you know, books and movies and mm -hmm. you know, that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell that helps. Um, <laughs> can tell I did not do that well in biology, perhaps. Um, it's all good. Anyway, um, but that's that's a cool idea. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. So, okay. One more serious question. What do you think needs to change? There's a couple different, like, things. The broad, the broad thing that needs to change is a top-down understanding of what we do. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to communicate it like this part of of talking of, of the whole podcast is what is instructional design and how why is it so variable how does it look at different places different jobs different times it is hard to communicate what i do in a nutshell much to a faculty much less to um a dean or a provost or somebody and it's hard to say like, well, I respond to your needs. So let's talk about those. Yeah. I'm an internal consultant for things yeah. you don't realize you need. Yeah. Um, it's even harder to put a budget number mm -hmm. on the impact of that, which is in itself hard to do because it is very hard to do research or it's not very hard, but it's kind of hard to do research in education. And there's a lot of people who are way better at it than I am. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's human subjects and you're, you're, you're trying to say, you know, with this population of students in this time, in this context, with this course design, we had this happen. And then we completely changed people and time context and course design and it got better. And you're like, is that comparable? I don't know. Um, and what's the, what's the impact of that? Is it worth having a whole nother department running around telling people how to teach in order to redo how we do courses. Like, how does that make us money as a college? And you're like, I don't tell anyone how to teach. Also, the faculty are happier. Like, <laughs> I have a lot of anecdotal evidence that what I do is important. I don't have a lot of numbers and you need numbers. It's really hard because like so much of it is like, well, if I wasn't here, this may have taken 10 hours and it took two instead. And yeah. What you're, you're basically doing is projecting a potential time and saying it takes less time or a potential impact 
or, or like so much is based around like we're in a more constructive environment, like people had an easier navigating things. There's all these like tiny, mm-hmm. tiny little improvements and changes that's really difficult to quantify. And yeah, and, they and, liked yeah. it better. Yeah. What's the financial impact of they liked it better? <laughs> being easier to navigate that they were more comfortable that the the material was better laid out that like all of the stuff was easier to find easier easier to digest easier to remember all of that That is important that it looked modern yeah that it looked new and it's hard to talk about that stuff sometimes because so much of it sounds like what we mean is advertising or like you know like well we you know we we updated the building so people would want to come in the building more. And I'm like, and that's But if you think about it, how much money did MSU put into the foyer of the new STEM building to make it pretty? (laughs) Like how much, like they, you know, in that building, they purposefully left in some of the like cool looking architecture and stuff. Mm -hmm. And like, why? Because it looks cool. People like hanging around. It seems like a fun place to be. And that yeah. helps. Like, And that's not just what we do, but it's a little bit of what we do. And it's useful. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun. Yeah. Learning should be fun. Learning should be fun. Teaching <laughs> should be fun. Yeah. Elevating the just happiness of your faculty and your students at the same time is huge for the culture, of course. If faculty aren't excited, even if they like the material, if they aren't excited because they have to teach the same thing again, you know, they, they could say it in their sleep. They've said it seven times. It's, it's just reciting their spiel. The students pick up on that and they get a little, they're just a little bit disengaged, just a little bit. And that's all it really takes. So if you had to pick an animal to be your spiritual guide from now until mm-hmm. you know, the, the, end, the rest of your time here, uh, which one would you pick? And how would they communicate with you? My mind immediately went in two different directions. There's the one I would pick, and then there's the one I think that might actually <laughs> <laughs> represent me. I've always been a cat person, so it would be some kind of of wildcat, not like a lion or a panther or a tiger. It's a midsize, something like a like a serval or a, one of those small leopard cats or something. Snow leopard. I freaking love snow leopards. Um, they're gigantic tails and they're so fluffy and they just bounce off of things. Super cute. Um, I think that they would probably communicate uh it sounds dumb but telepathically through very condescending looks just the most judgmental of and then just uh, just an idea coming to me from like are you for real and then the occasional no squat point upside is the cat approving of what you're doing <laughs> <laughs> not usually unless i'm feeding it or playing with it it's a cat <laughs> makes sense if i was to think about what my familiar probably is um, it's probably something considerably uh, clumsier and more clueless. So I'm thinking like not, like a seal on land. <laughs> like that's that's the only it can never get in the water. It just always has to be. On land. <laughs> yeah, because when they're in the water, they're fantastic. That's that's kind of how I feel. It's something that can go between land and water. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when it's on land, you're just looking at it like wow. I mean, you get where you need to go, but it's not graceful. Um, mm-hmm. And we might laugh at you. And then you get in the water and you're just like chef's kiss, running around, <laughs> being a predator, like a freaking water cat. Do you think that perhaps biology was your land and now <laughs> design is your water? I don't, um, want, I don't want to simplify that much or make it that silly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I just, it, it's just how I feel. Um, just broadly. At any given moment for any given topic, I have felt like a seal in water and a seal on land in every aspect of my life at different <laughs> points. <laughs> okay, well, that's going to wrap up this conversation. <laughs> so thank you so much for talking with me and uh, for your time. Uh, it was really fun. Thanks. Likewise. Thanks for the invite again. It was good to see you again.
I've got some questions that we had uh, written out, and I've uh, put them, taken them out of their digital format and put them into an analog format because I find that more fun, and then put them into a real hat. So audience out there, I want you to know this is a real question hat. This isn't some sort of weird tool that we found on the internet and put a bank of questions is and ask an AI to generate some for us. We made these up and we put them on note cards. We put them in a hat. And also (laughs) it's like, it's a very specific and special hat. Like if you're picturing, you know, a wizard's question hat in your mind, that's probably exactly what it looks like. It's black, it's pointy. It has a nice wide rim. Um, it's full of questions. Little floppy on that on that brim there. Yeah, I think yeah. that needs to be our icon. Like I know we've been discussing like what our logo should look like. I think it's just Nick holding up the question hat. There it is. Um, okay. As long as we put it into a learning pyramid to satisfy <laughs> the instructional design uh, models that are all pyramid shaped. Exactly. Which a hat is yeah. kind of pyramid shaped, you know. So I think we're already. We're already meeting goals here. But are there we doing be, Addy or are we doing Sam? There should be Ooh, arrows Addy. pointing at something to show action. Okay. Okay, here Russell, we go. Russell, Russell, This is, I'm actually kind of <laughs> nervous. I don't really remember. <laughs> I am too. Okay, here we go. Okay, so within the practice of instructional design, what do you wish you could get rid of? It would be bad form to say faculty, wouldn't it? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> the thing I would get rid of, not faculty, Steve, but I would get rid of the mentality that many faculty have of that's the way it's always been done. But that's the way it's always been done. That's the way I've always done it. And uh, that would be if if that could just be eliminated as a paradigm, as a mentality, um, I think all of our jobs would just instantly get 50 percent easier, like just to not have to fight that. That's what I'd get rid of. But unless you meant like things that are part of instructional design, like on purpose, in which case I have to think some more. <laughs> I mean, I think it's they're pretty open questions. And uh, I think in that they may get us in trouble. And that's, you know, I, I'm anticipating Steve's probably going to get talked to as soon as this episode's released. But totally. No, yeah. probably not. <laughs> well, I mean, that would assume someone listens to it for my institution <laughs> first. From my or, institution. Or anyone listens to it. Um, well, I can't get negative let go, so I'm going to put it out there. <laughs> um, what I would get rid of is they just need to know and they just need to understand. And then when we ask those you know, good questions that we do as instructional designers. Can you tell me what problem you're seeing? What does success look like? Well, they just need to know. And and it kind of just, you just keep going in a circle. And so I, I'd like to find a way to get off that circle. Um, it does work better with some subject matter experts and faculty than others. But in many, many cases, you know, even those subject matter experts that we partner with to deliver and design and create good learning, um, they just have so much to do that they also can't really give you more than they just need to know. And so it's not really that I would get rid of that, but what I would add to instructional design is you need to have that conversation and you do need to have different answers than they just need to know and they just need to understand. Um, Easier said than done. So originally I was going to get rid of the question each time, but I think I'm going to put this question back in there Um, Because I think there's a lot of things that are cultural and then also just practices that should be reevaluated at the very least and and continue to be discussed. And and so I'm going to actually talk about instead of something that I think is is cultural to, you know, our practice and kind of why instructional designers exist at all. (laughs) um, Instead, you know, within the the work we do there is a tendency to look at these models and there's a tendency sometimes to look at the models and say this is the one to use and this is the one that's going to work and this is the best one and that varies from person to person but i find that like there needs to be a contextualization of where these things came from and i think for the most part models came from somebody working in a particular environment and getting pissed off and deciding that it needed to change and they came up, came up with a model that fixed their particular environment 
um, or at least tried to. And then they were like, hey, what if I could make money off of this? And so they tried to sell it to people. And so, for instance, not to criticize it, but if you look at backward design, that is a process that came about because K through 12 educators primarily were being given goals to hit, but had no idea how to achieve those goals. So given that you had learning outcomes, they provided you a method <laughs> to assess those learning outcomes and work backwards to the assessment so that you knew that you were going to hit the targets that were being given to you. Similarly with Bloom's taxonomy, they were being given all these things and no contextualization of how do you achieve those things. So they came up with a taxonomy so you could categorize these things and know in general what types of assessments you're supposed to be looking at. And then we took that and adapted it to a higher ed context and where there's a lot more freedom as, as kind of a guideline. And I'm not saying it's bad or that we shouldn't use it, but I'm saying we should discuss the context that it came from and assess if it's necessary to follow it as stringently. So I come from, whenever I, whenever I have and worked with people, I used to come from a very like, you need defined learning outcomes. They have to exist in your course because they help in students. And then you work and you realize, well, a lot of the time the students don't read those. Um, and it's kind of, you're questioning whether it's actually helping the students. And then you kind of, and then I came to a point of like, well, it's not really helping the students, but it is helping the instructor because then it helps them define what they want to do and it gives them a place to work from. And then I'm like, but is it really helping the instructor? Because like, it's kind of confining them. And then, so I just kind of came back to like, you need learning outcomes if you're going to require that people do specific things and you have to know what those things are and you have to be able to articulate them. If you don't care as much as part of your pedagogical practice, what they end up with, your learning outcomes can be kind of vague, you know? The learning outcomes should match what you intend them to take in, I think. And if you it make people adhere to a stringent method, they're going to hate it if they don't want to use it. And at the same token, if you're going to use vague outcomes, but expect very specific things, that sucks for your students. So those things at least have to match up. Your intentions and what you're communicating have to match up. But then some people will say, no, they have to be defined. Shut up, Nick. What are you talking about? Shut up, Nick. <laughs> well, I agree with you, but um, that's maybe why we're friends or part of the reason we're friends. <laughs> so we have similar thoughts about education. Um, I thought of one more easy one and then I'll let Steve jump in, which is I just want to get rid of animated cartoony videos that just have like a person and some bullet point words. Like, why do we need to make those? Why can't it just be text on a page that's accessible? I don't have to listen to stupid music. I don't have to look at some dumb cartoon. And I say that as someone who used to make those videos. And I wonder why, like, why did I take four hours to edit a scene in Powtoon when it could have just been text. And, and I see a lot of focus in instructional design on you know the graphics and the multimedia. And those are all skills I love and I would love to develop, but also it's a lot and it doesn't always have to be those outputs, right? Um, so that's something else I would get rid of. Um, making things that are fancy looking and storyline-ish when they don't necessarily need to be that way. <laughs> I, I think the thing that I would like to get rid of is the caste system mentality between faculty and instructional designers and the thought that your instructional designer only has a master's while you're, you have gone as an instructor and you have gotten your doctorate. And so what can this person who only has a master's bring to this? Versus the idea that, you know, over the past five years or so, there's been an explosion of people coming into instructional design who may have been K-12 teachers or anywhere else who went, yeah, K-12, we're, we're done with this, but I know learning. I know teaching and learning. And I know what kept my students' attention. 
And by the way, my students back then are about to be your students. Maybe I could offer you some insight on what you're doing. And maybe just standing there at the front of the class for 90 minutes and not actually asking questions, just blasting through your slides, maybe that's not the best way to do it. And maybe you could actually, I don't know, take a suggestion. It's not a mandate. It's not a requirement. But when your IDs are there and they have already learned the glad handing that they need to do of, have you considered? Well, we've seen people have success with or other things like that. You know, faculty, perhaps you can, we're trying to help you. We are part of this ecosystem of education too. We are trying to make sure that everyone gets the best results. We are, I, I don't know about the, the, the rest of you, whether you see yourselves this way, but I see myself as a translator between faculty and students. Sometimes I'm advocating for students and sometimes I'm advocating for faculty because both of y'all are happy to yell at each other and tell each other how you're doing everything wrong. And I would like to help translate and say, you know, maybe you could do this. On the other hand, maybe you could bring a little more to the table here. So that's what I wish could go away in instructional design, at least mm -hmm. today on my second cup of coffee. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think that could be a topic for, for a whole future episode because, you know, it wasn't until I started adjunct teaching just mm -hmm. one semester that faculty decided to listen to me <laughs> when I would lead technology webinars because rather than here's how you upload the syllabus in D2L Brightspace, it's here's how I uploaded my syllabus in D2L Brightspace. Wait, you know what you're doing? Like I knew before too. <laughs> I just had a slightly different role and background from you. Um, but yeah, that happens a lot and it gets me very angry and I could happily rant about it and brainstorm solutions with you all uh, for hours. <laughs> I have uh, an idea that I want to share with our listeners, which is whenever you're listening to this, whether it's in 2023 or 2053, uh, just take some time over the next few days to see what's going on in instructional design or learning spaces in your world, uh, whether you work in this field, whether you don't, you know, see is everything or are things being replaced by robots and AI? Um, are people given more or less time to pursue their passions? Are we becoming overly productive, underproductive? I think things are going to keep shifting. So no matter when this gets out there, it'll be relevant to some degree because, yeah, this is a part of how we how we are in the world where we're teachers and we're learners and we're designers. And sometimes we're those things formally, but mostly informally. So that that's my thing that I want to leave listeners with. Just go out there think about whatever we talked about in this episode, which I don't remember. Otherwise, I'd recap it for you. But see what resonates for you and let us know. That's the best I got. What else? <laughs> and you can let us know by sending us an email to somewhere, I'm sure. We'll, we'll post it somewhere. Put... <laughs> uh, well, I'll record something where I say what our email is. <laughs> So oh, I thought we just wanted people to crumble up a little ball and like throw it in the general direction of our question hat. And we were going to use droids to catch it because we love technology, especially Nick. Go. He loves technology the most. <laughs> so the my wrap up thought is that we came up with this podcast is because we noticed that to be a successful instructional designer, there's just a lot of things you have to know that you're not going to learn anywhere else because a lot of them are institution specific or they're just things that you gotta know on the job so we called ourselves the secret society of instructional designers um and just think about in your own jobs if you are an id or anything else um what other uh secret uh knowledge that you need to be able to succeed in your job and how to uh, you know, help others who might uh, be trying to break into the field or, you know, just understand and recognize that not everybody knows what you know. It's it's sometimes really hard for us to remember, like, oh, not everybody knows about cognitive load, um, but just try to have that, you know, kind, um, empathetic eye towards your own secret society. 
Questions or comments can be sent to secretsocietyotid at gmail.com. That's secretsocietyotid at gmail.com.